0: Hello and welcome to a one-off COP28 special of Instant Insights. And I'm Chris Cooper.
1: Global data journalists have been reporting on and from the COP28 climate conference in Dubai, providing news and perspectives from across sectors. This special episode of Instant Insights draws together interviews with climate bodies, carbon accounting organisations and energy companies to offer insights into COP itself and the wider issues around climate change.
0: Carried out during COP, our interviews focused on the key priorities of and takeaways from this year's conference. We discussed the main players driving the green transition, the role that new technologies and nuclear power can play, and the need for standardised carbon accounting. We began by asking Nick Waith CEO of professional body at the Energy Institute, about the current status of global efforts to curb greenhouse gas emissions and prioritise sustainable energy sources.
2: We're not where we need to be. We all know that. Um, the statistical review of world energy that the Energy Institute publishes tells us that emissions continue to rise uh, last year from energy, reaching an all-time record high. Uh, and still today, 82% of our energy comes from coal, oil or gas.
1: The Energy Institute's concerns were echoed by James Parker, sustainability lead at minimum, a London-based carbon accounting firm.
3: There's pretty much a consensus agreement that we're not doing well, or that we're certainly not doing well enough. You know, since the Paris Agreement, where those very ambitious targets were set, the progress has not been fast enough, and that's that's across the board, really. There has been progress, of course. We know we've seen certain sectors, certain countries decarbonise. At a very strong rate, Uh, you know, the installation of renewables, the improvement in energy efficiencies in certain regions has been really promising. Technological improvements have been promising as well. But fundamentally, we're not all moving fast enough in the right direction. And this is an incredibly important year.
0: Other climate experts say the widely recognised 1.5 degrees Celsius global warming threshold is no longer achievable in the short term. Set in 2015, as part of COP21's Paris Agreement, The 1.5 degree target must now be replaced by an overshoot tactic, according to Andrew Griffiths, Director at Carbon Reporting Certifiers, Planet Mark.
4: There was a press conference where Johan Rockstrom, one of the most respected scientists in climate science, announced officially that, according to the latest studies, the 1.5 degree window for us to go directly to remaining below 1.5 degrees has closed. Done. We can't do it not possible. Our only pathway that is now available to us is overshoot. And it's now down to us to determine what level of overshoot. Is it 1.6, 1.7, 1.8? And then also how quickly we can get it back down. So the idea being we're going to overshoot now, the the target 1.5 degrees, and the goal will then be to get back below 1.5 degrees by the end of the century, by 2100. Indeed,
1: such is the current climate situation that Adele El Gamal, Secretary-General at the European Energy Research Alliance, believes that more controversial technologies such as nuclear power should be considered as part of the solution.
5: Well, it's no surprise, of course, uh, that we need, uh, we need at some point in time and the, the quicker, the better uh, to phase out completely fossil fuel because they are responsible for more than three quarters of the, the global emissions. And we need to replace those by a mix of our technology. So what, what the mix is, is really something that will be very dependent from country to country, from situation to situation. Uh, our take is generally that the emergency is such that we need to consider really all the technologies that can contribute to the decarbonization. So I think we need to take a a rather agnostic view, you know, take whatever can be taken in terms of decarbonization potential. And this is the reason why at Era we're looking at all low carbon technologies, uh, including by the way, uh, technologies, which might be a little bit uh, 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 more, uh, how can I say, um, uh, controversial, such as uh, CCS or, or nuclear for some countries.
0: Planet Marks Griffiths, who attended last year's COP in Egypt's Sharm el-Sheikh and COP26 in Glasgow, Scotland, the year before, found this year's event to be by far the most combative.
4: There's heated debates at COP this year, I think it's fair to say. I think this is my third COP, this year more than any other year. It feels like all parties came ready for a battle at the start. People have been sharpening their weapons, people were expecting a fight, which to a certain degree is always the case, but usually it gets quite heated in like the second week as negotiations are But this time, it felt like it got heated before it had even begun.
1: Gareth Redmond King, international lead at the Energy and Climate Intelligence Unit, questions the attendance of executives and lobbyists from within the fossil fuel industry.
4: There
6: has been a dramatic expansion in the number of passes that were dished out this year, there's also been a similar expansion in, for example, the numbers of fossil fuel lobbyists who are here. Um, a record number, nearly two, well, over 2,400 on Global Witnesses count. And some of them, you know, uh, I mean, there's been much greater transparency at this COP as well. So everybody is individually named, it says who they are, it says why they're there, you know, who's supporting them to be there. So this is probably how we know. Maybe there were actually 2,400 um, fossil fuel lobbyists at Sharm el-Sheikh. It's just there is greater transparency this time. But also some of them are rather prominent. So whilst people are working very hard in the negotiating rooms over there to try and keep us within a hair's breadth of of keeping temperature rises to 1.5 degrees... Darren Woods, chief executive of the biggest oil company on the planet, is giving speeches in the blue zone near those negotiators saying, well, you know, they're spending an awful lot of time talking about fossil fuels. Why don't they talk about the emissions, which is precisely the line that is taken by countries like Saudi Arabia, who are in those negotiating rooms right now, trying to block progress on fossil fuel phase out. So, you know, there are some people who shouldn't be here. and um. I, I in my view Darren is one of them uh, but then, yeah it's it's hard to see that it, it is hard to see the justification for there to be quite that many passes dished out. But I wouldn't definitely not want to be at the other end of the spectrum of saying that it, you know, it should be scaled right back to the negotiators. One of the most important things about these processes is the the inclusive nature of them, is that civil society is here in all its different forms, you know, is at the table, genuinely at the table and and part of the negotiations and part of influencing and connecting the the, the various parties to these
0: the United Nations has faced criticism for giving hosting rights to the UAE, the world's seventh largest oil producer, which was accused of using the conference to strike oil and gas deals. The Energy Institute's Nick Waith discussed the significance of the
2: UAE hosting COP28. I think it's really important that it has been held in a petrostate. state. I know that's caused a great deal of controversy, but actually we need oil and gas at the table. You know, We know how much oil and gas is contributing towards climate change and the solutions to uh, reducing those emissions is going to come from that sector. So I think having everybody there, uh, it's led to some sort of, you know, difficult conversations, it's led to some headlines, um, but ultimately having everybody around the table is absolutely critical.
1: The sustainability of the event itself has also drawn scrutiny. Although Fabian Kohler, Senior Vice President of Road Logistics and Customs for the Middle East at Kuno Nagel, COP's official logistics partner, said on site operations had largely been eco friendly.
7: Look, uh, I need to give a big compliment to the organizers. Um, It was clear from the beginning they did not want window dressing. Um, So they really wanted us to operate the on-site operations in a sustainable manner. And we can say now um, the inbound operations obviously concluded. The event is almost at an end, right? And soon we start with the outbound operation. All the last mile from the Dubai airports and seaports or the land borders was done with our electric fleet. Uh, Part of it really acquired for the COP itself. And also the material handling equipment on site was above 90% uh, electric. So that was has been taken very serious and it was audited. So that that is really good. What is obviously always a challenging part is the international freight, right? Uh, you asked before what uh, technology is available. Um, not 100% of the freight coming internationally came in a sustainable way. That is hardly avoidable today. But we can say with the customers working with us, uh, we offered our insetting options, obviously, book and claim for most of the transports, and we were really surprised how big the demand was also for sustainable international freight to the COP28.
0: There was fervent discussion about the phrasing of fossil fuel commitments in the COP agreement, finalised on Wednesday the 13th of December. The so-called UAE consensus pledged to, quote, transition away from fossil fuels. Speaking midway through the conference, Waith praised pending deals to lower methane emissions, one of the most potent greenhouse gases.
2: Well, I'm really pleased with some of the announcements that have already come out. So firstly, um, we've seen agreements around basically taking methane emissions down to zero by 2030 and and flaring. And not many people know this, but that is the single biggest thing we can do to tackle climate change in the near term. Caitlin Swellick
0: program director for heavy industry at Global Energy Monitor, commented that the US, India and China have a significant role to play in decarbonization, but emphasised that China's role in particular will be pivotal.
1: Coming from the iron and steel and heavy industry perspective, the three main ones that are on my mind right now are the US, India and China. And for slightly different reasons, China is at least half of the world's iron and steel production and probably slightly more in emissions because of the technologies that they're using. So decarbonization is only possible if it happens in China. I mean, what happens in China is going to determine what happens globally.
0: Charles Chang, vice president of Chinese-headquartered solar firm Longi was quick to point out China's eco-friendly efforts in areas such as solar energy.
8: I, I cannot comment on other country, but uh, in my view, based on the day and night, what the news and activity I look at, I think China is really committed to do that. So, you know, our whole country, you know, is put a, a detailed plan, not only for the utility area, for example, we have lots of dessert and then, you know, the, the sea, they can put lots of uh, you know, solar power and also wind. But also, if you look at distribution generation area, we also installed lots of solar panel. So when you have a chance to look at the country, come to China, you visit the rural area, you will see solar is everywhere. Is anywhere. So uh, I think, you know, in my view, China has a strong commitment and also action plan in place every year to ensure we reach that target. And also, I think China put that on the really first priority. Line.
0: Looking ahead, Minimum's James Parker suggested
3: that a new approach for future COP events could prove more fruitful. I think it's very difficult to say about the, the future of COP because Maybe there's different events that could be set up. Could you have a, a business COP and a separate kind of delegation or, or negotiations COP? I'm sure there's ways around it. I don't think that you know there's going to be less stakeholders next year that are involved in climate change mitigation and adaptation and biodiversity and ocean health and all the other aspects around it. So I think it's a way for the governing bodies just to say, okay, maybe maybe we can't just keep you know scaling up COP every single year just with the amount of people going. But are there innovative ways that we can build in solutions, whether it's posting different more virtual events, whether it's hosting separate COPs for you know business and, and the negotiation delegation side of things. So I'm optimistic that COP is not going to shrink in terms of its impact. Maybe it'll shrink in terms of the two weeks that occur. Uh, and fundamentally, this COP will be the COP with the largest carbon footprint as well. So you've got to think about the impact of hundreds of thousands of people flying in. So maybe there's a lot more that can be done to reduce the climate impact of COP, but not reduce the kind of optimism and the moving forward and the ambition level.
1: Parker also emphasised the unglamorous importance of carbon accounting for net zero targets and transition plans.
3: So carbon accounting, I suppose, is not in the headlines of the negotiations and the delegation discussions. However, there were a lot of side events that focused on on value chain footprinting. You know, all these businesses that are setting ambitious net zero targets is underpinned by carbon accounting. If you don't have a strong baseline in place, if you don't have strong data collection and emission calculation methodologies in place, then, you know, you can't set your net zero targets. You can't build your transition plans.
0: Also on reporting, Ellie Kinney, a military emissions campaigner at the Conflict and Environment Observatory, noted that previous COP agreements have failed to address the lack of transparency around military emissions, which account for 5.5% of global emissions.
1: Prior to the Paris Agreement, we had the Kyoto Protocol. And while the Kyoto Protocol was being negotiated, the US actually lobbied for the militaries to be excluded from emissions reporting when they got that. So that completely excluded them from reporting. When it came to Setting up the wording around the Paris Agreement. This language shifted slightly from excluded to voluntary, but there's still not a huge amount in the semantics of that. Despite this, Kinney believes awareness around the military emissions gap is rising, driven by ongoing conflicts. There's been so much more of a conversation around this over even the past 18 months, I'd say. Highlighted definitely by the fact that I think you've got large scale conflicts like Ukraine, which is this is how it all interlinks. You have people looking at what's going on in Ukraine and going like, oh god, there must be a huge environmental impact and a huge climate impact. They go to look at what that climate impact is. There's no
2: data.
0: As COP28 drew to a close, experts, campaigners and politicians weighed in with their opinions on what was achieved in Dubai. The UAE consensus has generally been received as a step in the right direction, if far from a historic deal spelling the eventual end of fossil fuels. Heavy criticism was voiced by the Samoa-chaired Alliance of Small Island States. Despite containing some of the nations most affected by climate change, delegates from this alliance were reportedly not in the room when the agreement was finalised. In her closing remarks, Samoa's lead negotiator, Anne Rasmussen, said the UAE consensus contains, quote, a litany of loopholes. Caitlin Swalek from Global Energy Monitor weighed in with more.
5: To me, that just seems
1: incredibly problematic that the countries that are going to be or actively being the most affected by climate change are not at least witness to the deals that are happening by the countries that are causing it. Contrasting praise came from OPEC, an alliance of countries that produce almost a third of the world's crude oil. Prominent OPEC member Saudi Arabia said that the deal wouldn't affect its ability to sell or export oil, throwing doubt over the consensus's real-world impact. All eyes now turn to how the near 200 signatories will tangibly implement climate pledges made in Dubai. Thanks for joining us for this special COP28 edition of Instant Insights.